It's my joy to be here today for my friend Tom Townsend. Tom and Connie are such blessings to Sharon and I, and I uh, just appreciate so much um, their lives. When I heard about uh, Connie's illness earlier, knowing that I would be here, you know, wondering what God is doing, and then hearing about the little mishap that Pastor had earlier in the week, I thought, God has something unique for them at Myrtle Beach, not anything what they had planned, but God's doing something very special in their lives this week, and that's what I've been praying, and I trust that you're praying that as well. He always does. He never makes mistakes. He always has a purpose, even though at times we may wonder what is our part in it. I'd like to think about that for a few moments with you this morning. We're going to look at uh, a couple of different, uh, somewhat familiar passages I'd like to start in Luke chapter 24, and this is kind of the diving board. This is a springboard to get into where we're going to be uh, in the book of Acts. And um, I'd like to qualify in some ways what we are going to share as the main content by picking up, I think, the thought process that Dr. Luke has as he finishes the first volume of that two-volume set we know as Luke and Acts, written by the same man, a doctor who pays attention to details, And he knows people, which I really appreciate, because he writes that way as God directs him. He writes that way. He he deals with details that the other gospel writers, again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, yet uh, very uniquely in their own regard and from their own perspective, Luke writes because of what he has heard others share, and he pays attention to people. And I think that's really important because I think everyone gathered here today would consider themselves a person, a part of the people group known as the human race, and that's, I think, very helpful for us. Here's what I'd like us to make uh, note of, and that is in Luke chapter 24, um, beginning in verse 44. Now, this is, this is a uh, story that has been going on for several chapters, we know. It's the end of Luke's gospel. At this point, uh, we know who Jesus is. They've di- discovered who he is. They have been with him through the trench times of his betrayal, his arrest, his, his beatings, um, all the horror that was a part of that overnight sequence into uh, early the next morning when Jesus is then nailed to a cross. And he dies, and he's buried, and he's in the tomb three days, and he raises again. That's the first part of Luke 24. Ladies coming to a tomb, they get there, here are Uh, some mysterious strangers. They are messengers known as angels. And they say, you know, why do you marvel that this tomb is empty? Didn't you listen? And we, as you, as you study Luke, you find that there have been at least four instances where Jesus has made a statement similar to this. It is necessary that the son of man come, that he be scourged, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried, and that three days later he would rise again from the grave. Three times, that's been at least three times up to the point that we get to chapter 24, and then it's reiterated again. Three times at least, literally, this has been recorded by Luke in great detail. Now, if I were to say something like that to you today, don't you think you would remember that, right? If I said to you today, at 2.30, and I'm not a prophet, and I don't know God's plan, but at 2.30 this afternoon, I'm going to die. And you're going to, hopefully, some of you will come to my memorial service, depending on how this sermon ends up, I guess. 
and three days later, I'm going to rise again. How many of you think you would probably remember that? Well, they should have, but it's obvious they don't have a clue. Part of it, I think, is the whole faith equation. They didn't really know that they could believe this, even though I think they were convinced in many ways that this is Jesus, the Son of God. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son of Man, Luke records, came to seek and to save those who were lost. They're convinced. And yet, practically speaking, not quite. And so there's the ladies, and the angel said, why do you marvel? Because didn't you, didn't you listen? Didn't you hear what he said? And so then they run back, and they tell these followers we know as disciples, and the, the, the word's getting around. The tomb's empty. We know that. The, there's verifiable evidence of that. He's gone. We aren't sure how or what. Here's what is being said, and two guys at least, are on their way down to a place called Emmaus, and they're walking down the road, and they're rehearsing Old Testament. Now, to them, it's just current because there is no New Testament at this point. Jesus is fulfilling everything so that there can be this new covenant, this New Testament, and he he just has in his resurrection. But they're talking about this, and they're walking along, and all of a sudden, this this third person comes with them, and he's hearing them. He begins to interact, and he, from the beginning of the Pentateuch all the way through the major or minor prophets, he, he grids it all out as if there's this big picture, PowerPoint, and he's, he's connecting all the dots about who he is. And when he leaves them, they said, wow, didn't our hearts burn within us as he, he showed us literally the way, the path? It's the Lord. And then he reappears again. They're gathered with others, and that's where we're at here as we come to chapter 24, verse 44. And he stands in their midst, and guess what he says? Ah, once again, reiterating the emphasis. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you, Luke 24, 44, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third days rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of all sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's he talking about, clothed with power from on high? Well, that's the, that's the, uh, pre, uh, the preview of what's going to happen in our text, which is Acts 2 which happens in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, for a last time, is with them on the mountaintop. He's ascending to heaven, and he says, Now, when the Spirit of God has come upon you, you'll receive power. I think I've actually preached that text here before. You'll receive power when the Spirit of God has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends back to the right hand of his Father, authenticating that everything that he has said is truly of God and that he is the Son of God and that his redemption is true and available to all. And then chapter 2, verse 1, they're gathered as he had commanded in that room and the Spirit of God comes upon them, literally baptizes them into the body of Christ and births what we know as the church. The baby church, pediatrician, Holy Spirit, slaps that baby church on the backside and the baby church comes out of that upper room crying with life. There they are, out in the community, early in the day, telling about the glories of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. 
there are people, it's the day of Pentecost, there's people all around from different places, and um, they're seeing this, this, this um, mob gathering coming out. You know, it's like one of those mob gatherings in a mall. Uh, and uh, this, this, cloud, this crowd begins to talk and share about God. But the amazing thing is people, regardless of where they were from, whether it was a different accent, a different uh, dialect, whatever it was, they heard people speaking as if they were speaking in their own language because miraculously the Spirit of God allows them to hear and understand. And it's an authentication that this is of God. And God is powerful. And Jesus is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the risen Lord. And what he offers is real and it's available, and it's for you. And in the midst of all of this, a man moves front and center because he hears what's going on in the crowd, all the spectators who are seeing this happening, who are saying, murmuring some under their breath and some laughing loudly, saying, look, they're obviously drunk. They're intoxicated. They don't know what they're saying or what they're doing. And front and center stands this man whose name is Simon, Jesus would, in some ways humorous to those around him, rename him Peter, which means rock, small rock. Peter would proclaim, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then later on, he would kind of stand in the shadows when Jesus is being uh, betrayed, arrested, and Peter scared to death. But Jesus said, you're the rock, and upon this rock, big boulder, not you the little stone, but the big boulder, I will build my church. The fact that I am the Son of God, I am the Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. It's a pretty strong statement, right? I'd say an eternally transforming statement, and it's true. All these things that he said are true, but it's this group that we're, we're puzzled by because they've heard it, they've heard the story, they've heard the mission that Jesus is on, They've heard it several times, and yet it happens, and they can't believe it. And in front and center comes this man named Peter, maybe the biggest bumbler of them all. And he says, hey, I hear what you said. I know the rumor going around here. I hear what the crowd buzz is right now. And I want you to know, number one, these people aren't drunk. It's too early in the day for them to even get to that point. You're off your rockers. I don't. That's my... Opinion that would be modernizing what he said. I don't even know if they had a lot of rockers back then, but but they were off their rockers. They didn't understand. And it's Peter, of all people, who stumbled and mumbled and grumbled and was scared and frightened. He's the guy who then preaches the first message that we have recorded for us in New Testament scripture. Amazing! Wow. Shock. Wow. It would be as if it were you or me. Because we don't qualify as well. And very honestly, if we had true confession time right now, we'd say we'd be like the ladies who went through the tomb and were still surprised to find it empty. Be like the two guys walking on our way to Emmaus trying to connect the dots, clueless. We would be like the group who are in a room praying and saying, I am not at all sure why he has us doing this, but you know what? 
Everything else he said is true, so I guess we better stay here until whatever it is. And he's given us some hints as to what it is, but we don't know what it is. And when it is, I guess we'll know. And it happened, and they knew, and they went out, and they declared, and here's Peter in the middle of them. It's amazing what God will do with people when their eyes are open to the truth of God. And you're just like me. You're just a lost old sinner that unless God's grace eternally impacts you, you don't have a clue. And we don't. It's God's gift to us to have not just the clue, but to know the big picture. And I know all of us have family issues. We all have these things going on in our lives. Someone asked me if, if uh, my fi- family suffers from insanity. I said, no, actually, we'd rather enjoy it. That's a joke. No one ever did say that to me, but I, I just like that. I just try to squeeze that in wherever I can. And when, when you're with your in-laws the next time, maybe you could just say that. You know, you don't suffer from insanity. You seem to enjoy it. Our world seems to enjoy it, doesn't it? Enjoy insanity. And that seems to be what's going on here as Peter gets up and then he starts sharing with them the clear plan of God on that day we know as the day of Pentecost many years ago. And then he preaches about Jesus. And he did have a captive audience And several in that audience were those who had been in the room, and they were now part of the newly born church. And they now, for the first time, because it's the Spirit of God dwelling within them, who begins to illumine their hearts and minds to realize, wow, we are a part of eternal history. They they don't question, they marvel now at what Jesus has done. And as I read Peter's sermon, just a part of it, I want you to be in the same vein of mind that they would have been. Listen to this man who's been a bumbler, who now proving the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He says, when the Spirit of God has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses. That's Peter's proof, proof top positive, and so am I, and so are you, that it's the power of the Spirit of God that enables us to accomplish anything and any endeavor. That God calls us to in Christ Jesus. Here's what he says uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 22. Follow along. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And they've just watched him go up into glory. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's the Lord. That's Jesus. That's the one that, for a while, on the way to Emmaus, these guys couldn't even recognize. Scripture does. The Old Testament prophets did. And now they do because the Spirit of God has helped them to understand 
the greatest of all things that has just happened just a few weeks previously. And Peter goes on, verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, still sealed shut. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. Dots are now connected. And they were all amazed, it says. They were cut to the heart. They cry out, what shall we do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You believe the message because it's true. Now, for the moments that remain, I want to encourage you. Because as Peter talks here about what the finished work of Jesus Christ is all about, what it means to know that we have a Savior and Lord who has risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his Father, as we learn later in the New Testament, he is sitting there ever making intercession for us. He prays for us. He cares for us because that's why he came. He identified with us by putting on human flesh. He's clothed in flesh. We'll celebrate that in just a couple of months. He, he was in all points facing temptation as we would and do, yet without sin. He knows about life. He trafficked in life like you and I do. He was crucified for our sake and for his Father's glory. He's now the risen Savior. He's our Lord. He's the head of this church, the Savior of our body. All of those things are true. And here's how Peter helps you and I to appreciate it as we would apply it in our lives. Because what he talks about is how you take what is something that could be rotely quoted which is shared by Luke several times in his gospel about the purpose of the gospel. And you break it down into meaningful chunks that relate to you and me that were overcome because Jesus paid it all on the cross. Going back to verse 22, he says, Hear this, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's think about Jesus of Nazareth a minute. You you read the Gospels, you'll come across this really weird statement. It says this. Someone asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? You may wonder if anything good can come out of Grand Rapids. I'm still not sure, and I'm here, and I'm a resident of Grand Rapids. I know what you're all thinking. Can anything good come out of Ohio? Hopefully Townsend's winning you over a little bit. I'm not sure I'll have the time try to win you over today but it would be like that it might be something that we joke about but for nazareth and the area being as evil it is it was probably a rather justifiable statement in some regards and that's where jesus grew up 
because he was identifying with everyone from every background, every situation. But there's this wall of doubt. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's the first thing that Jesus knocks down on the cross, the wall of doubt. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. We've actually gotten there, though. Wall of doubt. There are doubts in life. And that, so, I mean, right away, Peter just hits it. Bam, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And probably there's a buzz in the crowd right then. Nazareth? Nazareth? You're kidding me. That's the best that you can come up with? But it's the purpose of God that he come from Nazareth. And you stop and think about what it meant for Jesus to grow up in Nazareth. We're told in the New Testament letters that even his family doubted him. Jesus knocked that wall down. Actually, some of his siblings, step-siblings, would actually become his most faithful, fervent followers. You might be doubted by your family. You might be an adult right now in your 50s, and you're still rebelling or still in a state of horrific emotional trauma because of the very real doubts that were thrust upon you by your family. Welcome to Jesus of Nazareth. There's someone who can relate to your needs. He's doubted by his family. We've already learned, and we won't spend time on it, he's, he was doubted by his disciples. I mean, he did everything he said he was going to do, that the Father sent him to do. And they, we come to the post-resurrection. The, tr- the grave is empty, and they're still doubting. You ever been doubted by people who you thought were your greatest allies, a.k.a. Christians in the local church? Well, welcome to Jesus' world. Even as we preach today, he's still doubted, even by those who claim to follow him, who when it comes to the junction in the road where I choose God's way or my way, will still, even though we know it's going to be a lame brain idea, we'll go our own path. Because we're sheep. And sheep are stupid. Let's just all bow that together. Bah! We're stupid. Thank you. That Man, that was really good. Who did that? Sign up for the Christmas program. Sheep, right over here. Mark it down right now. His own disciples doubted him. The religious established certainly doubted him. They called him every name in the Jewish book. Heretic. Satan himself. That's the buzz on the street when these disciples come out of the upper room and they start declaring the glories of the Christ. That's what they've been hearing around town. They've been hearing about this guy they finally put to death on the cross as a heretic. And Jesus knocked down that wall. That's what Peter's preaching about. Just that very phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, Lord, as he concludes his message, wow. I don't care where you come from. I don't know what your background is. I'm not sure what your ills are today, whether they're physical, emotional, mental, personal, family-related, work-related, or just that you get tired of turning on the news every day. Jesus walked down, down the wall of doubt when he died on an old rugged cross. And rose again from the tomb. 
Notice what else he says here. Spends a lot of time, Peter does, talking about Jesus as the one who's crucified and buried. Second thing besides doubt that Jesus knocks down is the wall of death. Lots of our prayer requests deal with the imminency of death. I mean, even when I got the call from my dad on Friday afternoon, which in and of itself is usually strange because it's usually mom and dad on speakerphone, which is always an adventure because neither of them can usually hear over the speakerphone, but they both want to hear because I'm such a wonderful son, they want to hear, they hang on every word I share back to them. And that was a lie. But anyway, uh, they, it's just dad alone. I can tell, you can tell, right? You can tell by the voice, th- this isn't good. We all dread those calls. And God, in his sustaining grace, has spared, it appears, my mom from death at this point. But we know it's all coming unless the Lord returns first in the rapture. And Peter talks about that here. God talks about the greatest issues and needs of our lives. He doesn't soft soap it. He doesn't try to kind of, kind of gloss over it. I mean, that's the, that is the issue of life, right? Kind of sounds like an oxymoron to say the issue of life is death, right? We're experiencing it in the autumn season. We see life and death cycles. And Jesus overcame the wall of death. Peter says, Jesus overcame the agonies of death. You notice what he said in verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In Jesus, in Christ, we have hope. And it's not just speculative hope that says, oh, I wish, oh, I really hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But this hope biblically is speaking of a, a, an absolute certainty. That kind of hope he has given us on his cross. Death, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, is swallowed up in victory. Sorry about that. I didn't mean I wasn't having an attack here. Swallowed up. Just like a large sinkhole you watch on TV and everything just goes down. Death swallowed up in what? Say it with me. Victory. We used to sing an old song, Victory in Jesus, right? It's true. Death is swallowed up in victory, Jesus says. You want to know what the most impossible thing in the world is to do? Hold Jesus back. Contain Jesus. They tried. They tried everything, every trick in the book from a legal standpoint, every trick in the book from from a, a capital punishment standpoint, every trick in the book by a Roman edict standpoint, I'll put my seal on the stone at the crack where it holds in place at the tomb and put soldiers there and he won't be able to escape. And Satan is with glee saying, it's accomplished, it's finished, and you better believe it was. When Jesus said it's finished on the cross, goodbye death in the way that it had been known from the garden. The wall of death, gone because of Jesus. And Satan, I already already alluded to that. Satan did everything. He still does. Any of you ever 
have to deal with Satan or one of his followers? Yeah, every day, every moment. We have the sin nature curse, and we have an adversary who seeks to devour us constantly. Satan could not do anything to hold back God's power through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He he holds the keys, he says. (laughs) He is the lock, the gatekeeper even of Hades. That's Jesus, not Satan, Jesus. He is the one who is in all authority and control. God has a plan. And it doesn't matter what barriers are placed in your life, whether they are doubtful barriers or death barriers or spiritual enemy barriers through Satan. God wants us to know today, of all days and all times, that he's in control. I want to get back to how we started as we close, and that's this. You know how I know that it's true, what Luke wrote about several times in recording what Jesus said the Father's plan was for him? It's going back to all these people, like Peter, who when you see them before Pentecost and then after, you see the change because they've been transformed by the grace of God. Before, they're doubting. Afterwards, they're standing in front of a crowd, confident. Before, they're cowering in the shadows of a, of a little ring of fire uh, where people are talking about this Jesus who's just been arrested, and a little girl looks over, and he, she sees in the shadows this man who happened to be Peter and says, you, you, aren't you one of them? Oh, no, no, I'm not. And he throws in a few choice words just to make his point. And here he is now courageously standing in the marketplace preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before they're walking down the road to Emmaus seeking direction, we don't even know what is going on. And here they are now, Acts 2, giving direction. That's you and me. It should be. I mean, before the cross, before the empty tomb, we are clueless. But in Christ Jesus, we can do all things because he is the conqueror. Right? Romans 8. And it's easy to just get beat up by life, whether it's listen to the media, listen to all the stuff going back and forth, getting challenged because of even the uh, frailties and insecurities of our own lives. And it's so easy to just think, I'm nothing and I can do nothing. And this isn't some powerful pop culture type message. It's not about you and me. It's about the Savior who has redeemed us and placed us into a body of believers like Calvary Baptist Church and says, you get out of that building today, and when you, when you hit the streets, those walls have been knocked down. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to fear. 
your enemy is under my control, you can live triumphantly and you can bring glory to God because he came to this earth. He was scourged. He was buried. He was, he was crucified. He was buried. And three days later, he rose again. And because Christ lives, we, say it with me, shall live also. I think it would be a good idea if we just went out today living like that. No matter what happens, good or bad, that we are living as a child of the king because we're king's kids. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us, Lord.